Well, to begin the message, I'd like to do something a little bit unusual. Not terribly unusual for me, but a little unusual publicly. I just want to complain. I kind of have something within me that I would just call the January doldrums. Last year, Laurie and I came. uh, We've been here about a year and a half. And everyone warned us about these severe Chicago winters. Well, last winter was a piece of cake. I don't even know why people complained about it. It was was fine. It was long, but it was fine. Well, this winter, I'm in the doldrums. This past week, I had one car that wouldn't start, one that hit a pothole roughly the size of Rhode Island, and that car's in the shop. And If it seems like I'm whining, I am. Um, But we're getting used to it. And one of the things that we've noticed which kind of makes me smile and actually gives me hope, is I have already started this longing for spring. I know it's too early to have that longing, but I I need to start it for the sake of my mental health. I need to start it now. And I noticed last year something really fun happened because when spring came, we discovered neighbors that we didn't even know existed. They all came out of their houses And we could smell the wonderful aromas of barbecues in the backyard. And we saw people walking and jogging down our street. And we saw dogs being walked and straining at the leash, so excited about spring. Well, I'm eager for that again. And then I noticed that that lasts until about November. And since November, I haven't seen my neighbors at all. I don't even know if they're still there, but I trust they're all right. And I trust that they're warm. But looking for hope and encouragement this week, I did investigate the amount of daylight we currently have, and I have good news for us this morning. So today, we will have nine hours, 47 minutes, and 23 seconds of daylight. I know you came to church just to hear that. Tomorrow, the good news is, we will have two minutes and two seconds more. We're on the way to spring It will come. It will arrive. In a much more significant way, the Scriptures talk about the land of darkness, that place where the land is filled with darkness and dread and gloom and where hope has been dissipated and people are struggling to look positively toward the future. Isaiah, the prophet, Look toward a day when life would be different, when hope would blossom and the shadows of life would disappear. Now, he wasn't unrealistic. Isaiah was not prophesying that there would be a day when all of our problems would go away and everything would be perfect. He wasn't asking for that. But Isaiah lived in the land of Israel. Isaiah's people were divided They were in between and and involved in various wars and frictions. The people were in a deep despair. They had turned away from the God who loved them and blessed them. They were lost. They were in the land of darkness. And Isaiah warned about what that would do to them, and they wouldn't listen. They continually didn't listen. And at one point in Isaiah chapter 9, he shifts, interestingly enough, to the present tense, to describe a future event. 
And he wanted to make an immediate announcement to the people of power and hope. And he said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That was Isaiah's prophecy. And when we get to the second of the lectionary readings I want to share with us from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23, we see that Jesus claimed that very statement, that very prophecy of God, and claimed it and announced it as his own in the debut of his own public ministry following his baptism by John. So we begin the reading, and I'll simply read this for us from Matthew 4, 12 through 23. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And here's the verse. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Parenthetically. That's Jesus' public announcement. That's his acceptance of, proclamation of, and full embrace of Isaiah's own prophecy about him. The time has come. His ministry has now debuted. The darkness is going to flee. Light is now living in the land of God's people. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's here, now. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers— Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, and again, parenthetically, this is also the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This is what Jesus would do. This is how he would drive out the darkness. This was the proof that the light had come. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The lectionary texts actually seem a little bit oddly placed. In preparation for this message, when I read those texts, I thought, we're four weeks out from Christmas which was supposed to have ended another sort of dark season in the Christian calendar, this season of Advent. And though it's about hope and longing and expectation, it's also a season remembering we don't have the Savior yet. 
And Christmas comes and ends that. So the longing, the waiting of Advent ended in the coming of the Messiah. But yet, in Isaiah's passage and, of course, in Matthew chapter 4, it, we, don't, we don't ever think that the gloom and pessimism that we sometimes feel is odd or unnatural. It just feels a little odd to revisit it again after Christmas. The promise is, though, we don't have to live in that gloom and pessimism. And there is a stark contrast, a stark contrast between the land of darkness and the land of the light to which we have been called. Having lived in a part of the country that's known as Tornado Alley in the Oklahoma of my previous days, I've witnessed tornadoes and the damage they do. I've been in our house, hunkered down a couple of times while they went overhead and mercifully didn't dip quite down to our house. But you hear the roar of, it sounds like a train coming. You hear it and it's, it's fierce and, 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 and worrisome and you, you, you hunker down and just hope you make it. But the strange thing about a tornado, after the destruction's done, after the noise and the debris and the heartache, it's inevitably followed by a period of real quiet and peace. And the calmest skies and the bluest skies you've ever seen, it, there's something, a great juxtaposition between the tornado and usually the next morning when the skies are clear and all is peaceful and all, at least weather-wise, is fine. I think there's something of that contrast in what Isaiah and in what Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, what Jesus wants to tell us about the darkness and the light. There is this great contrast between the, the grief and the frustration and the hostility and the anger of this season of darkness and mindset of darkness and the light that comes to God's people when they experience the joy of salvation and of a relationship with God through Christ. We're for sure a month past Christmas. And admittedly, that beautiful day has not resulted in peace on earth. But inside our hearts, it is entirely possible that we can have the experience of the joy of the dawning of light in our lives and the fleeing of the dark shadows that seem to accompany many of us too much of the time. The question I want to ask, and I want us all to try to answer this morning, is this one. What part of us, or what part of you, what part of me, is living in the shadows of the dark places? And what can we do about it? The psalmist spoke of what God's presence had done for him by declaring this. In Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In verse 5, he continues, For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. He will set me high on the rock where the floodwaters won't get me and my enemies won't get me. He sets me high and protects me. 
Whether or not we believe that those words are true and possible will make a great difference in our outlook on life. From the royal birth announcement, which is what Isaiah's prophecy really was, to its fulfillment in the debut of the ministry of Jesus, we someday have to make a decision about whether we believe God's promises are true not just for other people, but they're true for us, and that we can say yes to his good intentions for our life. Again, it isn't to say being a Christian means that we don't have problems or we don't have struggles, but the difference between living in the darkness and living in the light is stark, and that's the distinction that Isaiah and Jesus affirming Isaiah and Matthew would wish to make. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus claims the very authority of God. He says, in essence, get ready. God's kingdom is now here. It's not here in all of its fullness. That will wait until the day of heaven. But it is here. And it's here with power. It's here with joy. And it is here with light. And as we read through the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels, what takes place after the debut of Jesus' ministry is that God, through Jesus, would prove that reality and prove that the kingdom has dawned because one after another in his teachings, he would announce and demonstrate a new kingdom, one ruled by a different ethic than the one of the world. And it will have a different response to human need and a different reaction to those who have wronged us. It is an entirely different kingdom of light. Now, to accomplish the mission, in John chapter 4, we see that Jesus recruited a small platoon of people he called disciples, followers, who were to follow him into the greatest mission in human history, a mission against darkness the shadows of darkness, a mission against prejudice and hatred and hostility and ignorance. This was the mission. It was a mission of hope for all who would listen and pay attention to this mission. And he called ordinary people to be part of this platoon of followers. They weren't religious scholars. They weren't people of power. His mission, he said to them, would not be easy, but it would be filled with light. And the same is true today. Those suffering severe pain would be healed. The demon-possessed and depressed were brought into the light of hope. The paralyzed walk and the new followers of Jesus saw all of this happen to real people in real time because they dared to say yes to God and could make a witness of those events. So here's the question again. Are you, or parts of you, still living in the shadows of dark places that are not necessary to be lived in? I'm obviously not talking about acute issues of clinical depression. I'm talking about the kinds of shadows and darkness where we just routinely dismiss the possibility that the light of Christ could be lived in with greater fullness if we would just say yes to God? That's the question. Can we say yes to God? 
When I think about this for myself, I discover there are still certainly parts of my life that I'm very reluctant to yield back to God. There are even parts of my life I want to hide from God, thoughts I have. And when I get gloomy and negative, there are times I just want to stay there and feel trapped in a state of mind that perversely feels kind of satisfying. Because if you stay trapped in that negative mindset, if you stay trapped in a state of mind that's basically saying no to God, you might get some sympathy from somebody because they might notice that you don't look like you're very happy. We can get very comfortable in dark places. We can even justify a sinful state of mind or sinful actions because all of us can become comfortable with the dark and at least somewhat afraid of what the light would reveal if we were to let it. The problem is, just to put it really bluntly, that's a lousy way to live. It'd be so much more enriching and fulfilling to have a sense of God's call in our life, to have a sense of God's own purposes for us and for our days. It would feel so good to brightly believe and trust God and believe that God has good things for us and good things for others through us. It would be so good to sense of, uh, have a sense of excitement in a partnership with God and that it would feel so good to believe that God can do something significant with us if we would only say yes to his call, to his ways, if we would only embrace his call to us and his truth with a sense of joy and with a sense of real partnership. It's entirely possible to live a long time as a Christian, but seldom experience the fullness of what God has for us. When we confront these scriptures announcing God's new work in the world, announcing a light has dawned, announcing that the darkness has been conquered, we're confronted with that and we say we want to live in the light, but, but we still tend to miss it. We can continue to live in the dark places. We can fold our arms if we want to. We can say no to the brighter light of God's good tomorrows. We can do whatever we choose to do. God gives us that permission to be and to respond as we wish to respond. We can, in essence, say no to God's call. But, wow, we're missing something seriously good. I wrestled in the last few days with a way to to illustrate, to try to paint a picture of what I'm trying to say here. And so here's the illustration. You might think it odd, but I think we'll get to the point where it'll help. How many of you remember, this is a little bit of a test, but how many of you remember 45 years ago when the first men landed on the moon? Do you remember that day? Maybe you watched television and you, you saw that event and it was an amazing event. That was Apollo 11, the landing of the first men on the moon. Let me go back a little bit and give some history on that. You might remember that in the 1960s, the Soviet Union and America were obviously locked in a bitter Cold War conflict. The Soviet Union was determined to beat us in the space race. And for a good number of years, they were beating us. They sent up the first satellite. We sent up a satellite. It fizzled, didn't get into space. They sent up the first astronaut. 
He was only up there about 15 minutes, but he went up, came back down, and survived it. It was quite a triumph. America had yet to send a a man, a person into space. Then the Soviet Union put a, a man in space and orbited him around the earth, several orbits. We still hadn't done anything. President Eisenhower fretted about this. And then when President Kennedy Kennedy assumed office in 1960, about nine years were were left for him to make this pledge. But in 1961, he said and declared an audacious goal that we would put a man on the moon by the end of the decade of the 60s, less than nine years away. And we had not yet even put a man in space. 400,000 Americans worked on the space program. There were the tragic deaths of three astronauts in a test run on the, on the ground at Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral then. There were countless mechanical failures along the way. It was a struggle. But in July of 1969, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin walked on the face of the moon. And those of us who remember that day were mesmerized by it, absolutely mesmerized by it. We remember if we were watching CBS, we remember Walter Cronkite looking over his glasses, breathing a great sigh of relief, very emotional when they radioed that they had landed on the face of the moon. It was a miraculous day for America and really for the world. The event was probably more tense than we even know. William Sapphire, who was President Nixon then when they landed on the moon, William Sapphire, who was President Nixon's speechwriter, later revealed that he had prepared two speeches for the president to deliver, and they were both on his desk in the Oval Office. One speech was one of congratulations and exultation that the astronauts had landed safely. The other speech was remembering the bravery of those who gave their life in the exploration of the heavens. Fortunately, he was able to give the happy speech. Now, I have special and strange memories of that day. My family and I were watching the moon landing on television in my mother's sister's house in a place called Mountain View, Oklahoma. Now, it describes something of the whimsy of Oklahoma people to name a town Mountain View, (laughs) which was roughly 600 miles away from the Rocky Mountains. There was nary a hill in sight. But there we were in Mountain View. Our family was ecstatic about the events of the day because we had something of a personal claim on this. We actually had one relative who was really brilliant. Okay, he was by marriage, but nevertheless. (laughs) He was an astronaut and the first astronaut physician. And so he was stationed on the aircraft carrier waiting for those astronauts, those brave men to come back after they blasted off for the moon and landed in the ocean. He was one of the first people to greet them. And then it sounds sort of strange now, but some were concerned that there might be germs on the moon, and so they isolated the astronauts for three weeks in an Airstream trailer with my cousin Clarence. (laughs) So we had something of vested interest in this. We were proud of Clarence. Nobody from our world had had ever gone to Harvard and got a medical degree and then became an astronaut. He was a very special man. 
So we were eager for this lunar landing, and we were eager when they, a few days later, when they landed in the ocean, and we saw Clarence on TV. We obviously were very wrapped up in all of this. Well, the day after the lunar landing, the day after the lunar landing, we went to the local diner in Mountain View, Oklahoma. It was the only restaurant in Mountain View, Oklahoma. We went for sort of just a celebratory breakfast and to just sort of mingle with the locals, and obviously my aunt knew them, and, and we, we sit down to a breakfast, and we're talking about the moon landing, and we're also overhearing other conversations in the diner of many people in the diner who were saying, well, that didn't happen. That was a government plot. That was all filmed on a film set in Hollywood so that we would look more powerful than the Russians. And over half the people in the diner were believing that. Now, that left us in a pretty awful position because we didn't want to alienate everybody in Mountain View. But on the other hand, we couldn't stay silent. And we said, no, it's true. We have this cousin named Clarence. Clarence was, he could tell you. He's gone through all of this training with these people. This was real. You saw it with your own eyes. About half the diner believed it. About half the diner didn't. The reasons were all varied, but it all had to do with some sort of a conspiracy. Or as one fellow told us at the table next to us, he said, if God had wanted people on the moon, he'd have put them there from the beginning. It wasn't a good time for a theological debate. We tried. We tried to tell them. We tried to ask them to believe the evidence that they saw. We tried to give them convincing evidence about our own cousin who, who was there, in, in essence. But people who want to live in the land of darkness can live there. And you can refuse to live in the land of a different light. You see, anybody can live in the darkness if they want to. You can choose to, to live there. You can choose to stay there. In believing, much more important in my little story, in believing what God has for us, we can similarly stay in the darkness if we want to. We can deny the possibility of God doing new and dramatic things in and through us if we want to. We can stay in the shadows if we choose to. We can cling to destructive habits. We can hold on to old grudges. We can ignore God's call to follow him to a new life. We can ignore that and say no to that if we want to. Like those salt-of-the-earth people really in that diner, we don't have to listen or act on better information or the possibility of something new happening. We don't have to act on it. God won't make us change. Or we can make a fresh response. We can say yes when God calls. We can take a chance at spiritual risk. We can be open to walking in the light and joining in the adventure that the first disciples said yes to, and we can say yes to. It all begins with God's whispered voice to us. That's how it begins. I don't know what it would be for you if God were to whisper this morning even what new bright light he has for you. 
It might be a word of forgiveness to another person that you have been withholding. It might be a call to a new type of service in, in God's own work. It might be an act of radical generosity that God has been whispering in your ear, but you have been holding back. Whatever it is, say yes. Say yes. Take a step out of the shadows. Move toward the light. Pay no attention to the naysayers and what other people choose to do. Pay no attention to those who are satisfied with the darkness. Take a step toward the bright light. God has a great plan for you. Would you pray with me, please? God, would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with a deep desire to live in the light? Would you shake us out of the lethargy of just old patterns of thinking or old patterns of believing what you can do? Would you ignite us? Would you help us to say yes? Yes to your glorious and good call. Whatever your call is on us, Lord, please help us to say yes. We pray in the name of Jesus who calls us all. Amen.